I thought I might begin by just sort of taking you through a little bit the sort of process by which this, this book uh, um, has um, come to be. Um, for my part, at least, and uh, uh, um, I speak for myself in this, um, it brings together, I think, um, three sort of different strands of things I've written about and tried to research in recent years. Um, the first of these is the problem of inequality. Now, as you all know, um, uh, Latin America is the most unequal part of the planet. And whether or not um, we, the figures would suggest that inequality in the case of Peru has reduced somewhat in recent years, I'm not sure to the extent that that's the case. Um, these figures as, as have been uh, are a source of a good deal of, of discussion and debate as to how accurately they really reflect the, the current situation. But what we are interested in here is to sort of um, not so much dwell on, on the notion of, of income inequality or even that matter um, um, equality, inequality of asset holding which um, I suspect has certainly not improved greatly in recent years. But what we do look at here in the book uh, is the question of inequality of access to um, decision-making and to power and what that has to say about the nature of, of democracy. So it raises certain questions when it seems that the, level, the, the playing field is very far from being level and when some groups in society have much greater access to the decision-making processes than others do. So inequality is certainly sort of you know, is one of the strands that uh, um, to, 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 to look at here. The second is the whole question of extractive industries. Now, um, this has become um, a relatively boom subject in recent years. I mean, we were, uh, Paolo and I and others were here, were, were at Lassa a couple of weeks ago, in, which took place in, in Lima. And the number of panels that there were on the issues of extractive industries in various ways was quite surprising. I mean, it's certainly become a major area of academic work. Um, here, however, we're less interested, but the focus is we decided to move slightly away from the idea of, of, of um, the problems of extractive industries that are associated with conflict and with um, community, you know, local communities um, and um, ethnic um, issues, and to focus more on the, the idea that... Um, extractive industry um, and its influence on the, the operations of the state. Now, of course, as we all know, that extractive industries tend to have a very rather skewed um, impact in terms of their, um, their bearing on patterns of, of economic development. But we're primarily interested more in the sort of political domain here. And the third area which I've uh, been working on in recent years and actually did my sort of PhD thesis on several years ago um, is the question of um, the erosion of faith, people's faith in political parties. Um, political parties um, have a hard time everywhere in Latin America, not even in Latin America. We don't have to look much further than around us to see the kind of difficulties that some the political parties um, are, are having in terms of, of, of representing interests in society. But um, the political parties in Peru have undergone a particular, particularly hard ride um, since the, um, the 1980s, at least. And some would argue, I think, that it's a country which, um, where, where its political parties are not very soundly rooted in, in society, 
looking back in, in a historical way. So we are interested here in the question of um, lack of mechanisms by which um, ordinary citizens, ordinary voters, can uh, relay their demands on the state through institutional means, which is considered through, through party, political parties is the, is, the, is the usual way. And um, to ask ourselves the question, you know, what, what kind of democracy do you have if you don't have any system of representation? Now, these concerns, these strands, which sort of I've been sort of working on combined to, to um, with Paco's interests in, in business elites, and as um, Paolo said, he's probably the, 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 the prime uh, um, researcher on this, this topic and has been at, been at it for many years now. He's the author of a, of a really truly stunning book about the Romeros, which um, is definitely worth everybody reading because it's a, it's, a it's a real classic of its kind of looking at how that particular uh, uh, um, sort of economic dynasty has sort of evolved over time. Um, but that aside, I mean, Paco's expertise in business elites merged with my interest to really to sort of uh, to hammer out what looked like you know, being a very promising area of, res of, of research and publication. And together we organized a conference which took place at Ox Oxford Brooks University about, um, um, I guess about 18 months ago, maybe two years ago, in which we brought together um, we put the idea of, of, of um, capture, political capture, on the table um, and invited uh, people with expertise from other parts of the world um, to, um, in, a, in a much more comparative way, um, which really helped us enormously in terms of clarifying the sort of questions that needed to be asked, because that kind of uh, comparative analysis really does help you focus in on what we think are what are the crucial questions. And there were papers given that conference which looked at um, the impact of, of, um, of capture in um, the former Soviet Union, in particular in Asia, um, in Africa, um, in Eastern Europe, and, 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 and so forth, which, as I say, was a very uh, um, useful uh, mechanism by which this, um, for, for organizing our thoughts um, to, to write this book. Now, probably for most of you, I don't have to go through in any great detail um, the, the, the various stages that have taken place um, in Peruvian history over the recent recent times. But let me just say, basically, it divides into into perhaps you could say three separate periods. Three, at least two of them, uh, and decades. The first, of course, being that of the government of Fujimori, um, which um, took office in 1990, um, and which involved a process a very radical restructuring of the economy in a neoliberal direction. Um, many people used to refer to this, this was a restructuring without anaesthetics. It was an extremely radical, uh, probably one of the most radical um, transformations to take place anywhere in Latin America, um, possibly rivaled by that of Argentina, but was a, this in itself was a reflection of the kind of economic difficulties that uh, the Fujimori government inherited. But as you all know, the Fujimori government became increasingly uh, autocratic in the way it operated, and the, um, the, the, the democratic institutions, which we refer to in, in the book, uh, were underwent, underwent a, a process of demolition, pretty much, during, during that the Fujimori decade between 1990 and, and, um, and 2000. Then, between 2000 and 2011, we had two governments 
uh, first of all that of um, Alejandro Toledo, who took office within, with a, um, at a time of, of institutional renewal, I would say, um, of an intent to try and uh, um, rid the, um, uh, the institutional elements of, of autocratic government which had um, characterized the, the Fujimori period and to create more democratic and participative structures. It went alongside with a, a, pro, a fairly radical program of de administrative decentralization. And secondly, under the Garcia government in the second period, the second five years of that, that ten-year period, um, a continuance of economic policies, the economic policies that have characterized the Fujimori period. Um, indeed, you might say, actually deepening of, of some of those, uh, of those changes. Finally, in the last um, period, um, there's began with, in 2011, with the um, election of um, Oyanto Mala, on a, on a wave of, of um, rejection of many of the impacts, the social impacts of, of neoliberalism in, in Peru, but returned to the very rapidly to the script uh, um, of, um, of uh, uh, liberal, business-friendly economic policies, which had characterised the, the, the period, the two periods before that. Um, and then finally, um, recently, as you probably know, the elections of 2016. Um, brought to power um, Pedro Pablo Kuczynski. Pedro Pablo, um, somebody who is uh, well known as an international banker and international financial um, business. Um, one of the formulators with John Williamson of the whole idea of the Washington Consensus and a former Minister of Economy and Finance, a really important institution um, in making of business decisions and making political decisions in Peru. And um, so I mean, what one sees in the case of Peru, um, unlike some of its neighbors, is that Peru is a total exception with the possible, possible glitch of, of the, the beginning of the Umala period or from the, what's become known as the Pink Tide, that sort of movement away, a more critical movement away from um, the... Um, politics and, and, and policies um, associated with, with the Washington Consensus. And during this time, what one sees, therefore, is um, over this 25-year uh, um, period, I think, is a, a substantial increase in what you might call business power. Um, on the one hand, the process of liberalization involved a... Um, fairly radical uh, transfer of assets from the public sector to the private sector. And then secondly, during the uh, period of the Toledo and Garcia governments, a um, boom of, um, driven by, by commodities, um, particularly the extractive industries in mining, in, uh, um, to which greatly increased the level of profitability of, of many of those companies, and which produced um, um, years of, of substantial growth. Um, probably unprecedented growth, and indeed Peru had the sort of unusual distinction during those years of being the country which perhaps grew fastest of any in Latin America. So this, I think, these two things led to an increase in the in the economic and, and the political power of, of business elites. At the same time, though, the other side of a, a coin of this process is a weakening of civil society organisations weakening of, um, particularly of organizations like trade unions, deliberately weakened, I think, by public policy um, of those associated with the Washington Consensus, 
but also the, a fragmentation uh, um, of um, civil society, which, unlike um, Peru's neighbours, like Bolivia, for example, um, failed to come together to provide to, to, pr to produce a joint platform um, of which would effectively challenge in any way um, this um, dominance of, of the business elites. Um, <coughs> Coupled with this, I think one can see very clearly um, is the uh, very low opinion which comes out clearly from um, opinion polls, comparative opinion polls like the, the Latino Barometro of the working of democratic institutions in Peru. Um, this is, this, if you look back over the, the Latino Barometro figures over the last um, 20 years or so, Peru comes out um, either at the, right at the bottom of the ranking or pretty close to it um, for every single year in terms of people's faith in democratic institutions and their ability to represent, to feel that actually their, their interests are represented through uh, democratic institutions. So our book then looks at the, the why and the how of this state of affairs. What have been the policies that have helped empower elites over this period? To what extent do large business groups dominate the economy and politics? And how much power do they in fact wield? What are the main mechanisms by which they wield it? And is this a self-sustaining feature over the foreseeable future? Or, on the other hand, what sort of challenges might emerge? These are some of the questions which we seek to try and provide some sort of these tentative answers. Now, some may feel that the, the title of the book is a little bit provocative. Uh, um, some so you might think it's a sort of tad radical in its sort of the way what, what it sounds. But ultimately, I think beyond just it's a good idea to have a book which has a title that says something, um, it does actually reflect, I think, the, the, the basic themes of the book. And so I think we, we, we feel justified that. We're interested in how power is exercised, the extent to which it prevails over public policy, overriding uh, um, those kind of challenges to which it may be subject. Now, looking at the question of... Um, state and political capture as a concept, it's worthwhile just briefly uh, um, trying to, uh, to, to look at this, 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 this conceptual evolution of, this, of these phrases. First of all, I think it was coined by uh, World Bank consultants working in uh, the former um, Soviet Union and the Asian countries, particularly Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, and uh, um, those uh, countries in which uh, extractive industries loom very large. Which, who saw, who identified the way in which privatization, following the, the collapse of the Soviet Union, led to um, the emergence of um, elite capture, largely very corrupt elites. Um, so, I mean, this was a source of considerable concern um, to people in the World Bank who saw the privatization process being vitiated by a process of what could be construed as um, blatant corruption. The term has also been used um, in Latin America, um, mostly in Mexico and Colombia, to describe the way in which um, illegal organizations have effectively taken over the, function, the, the role of, of state organizations. Whether they be in the case of um, Mexico, <coughs> the, um, the various cartels, the various drug cartels, or in the question in Colombia, both the cartels and various um, <coughs> um, insurgent movements, in particular the FARC and the ELN. 
So this was this 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 focus was very much on the illicit use of uh, illicit takeover of, of 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 state functions. Now our concern is to try and widen this out a bit to 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 focus less on illegal uh, um, actions, legal illegal types of activities which um, lead to um, state capture, and to focus more on some of the more legal mechanisms. Um, now that boundary between what is legal and what is illegal is often a difficult one to, to identify. As we uh, um, see recently in, in, in Peru, since we wrote the book, um, the um, revelations about the activities of Odebrecht and other Brazilian construction companies have um, hit the headlines and have shown with a great deal of clarity the way in which um, business elites um, have used illegal mechanisms to um, gain contracts, uh, gain public works contracts. So when we started off thinking very much more, trying looking at the more legal uh, uh, aspects of, of state capture. Um, at the same time, I think that uh, um, we are concerned to look both at what this means for, um, for democratic governance and what it also means in terms of, of economic inclusion for those people who live at the margins of society, <coughs> which, despite uh, um, years of quite impressive um, economic growth, the rate of the number, of the, the, the proportion of people living in the informal sector of the Peruvian economy has not changed. It was around about 70% in, uh, um, in the late 1990s, and it's still around 70% which shows the way in which um, the kind of growth that's taken place has not led to any great inclusion of these people within. And this is what you know, some nicely referred to in a, in a piece in the FT the other day as the, the, the precariat. Um, this, of course, you know, draw, helps us draw parallels possibly with other parts of the world, um, um, both in the United States, for example, where you know, the, 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 um, the Trump victory drew very much on feelings of, of, of failure of representation the, and the, the, the management, the, the maneuvers by elites over the years to, to, um, to that end. So before finishing, I'd just like to make a, a, a few observations <coughs> about our use of the term political capture, which may be helpful in terms of, of giving some sort of orientation as to, to what the book um, says and what it's about. First of all, it's certainly the case that Peru is not alone in exemplifying capture. I mean, I've, I've referred to various other cases in what I've said so far, and so I don't need to labor that point, but the um, opening chapter of the book looks very much in a, in a comparative way at what political what capture has meant in other, in other societies, and not least in the United States. I mean, it's unusual, perhaps, for a book on Peru to begin with a whole chapter on the United States, but I think it's, it's useful in terms of, of relativizing um, the problems. Um, Peru is certainly not alone in facing these, 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 um, these features. Secondly, well, it's nothing new in the case of Peru. Um, um, Peru is perhaps uh, distinct in Latin America um, for not looking back to a period of change, a moment in which the mass became involved in the political culture of the country, or the political management of the country. Um, 
Um, it's not like uh, Bolivia or Mexico, which can look back to a sort of process of, of revolutionary change by which people uh, um, took the initiative and, and came forward as political actors. Nor is it like uh, Argentina and Brazil and some others, a, a country which has experienced a kind of um, a populism that took place in the 1930s and 1940s. It indeed, the suppression of APRA during that period, I think, is very important in terms of why Peru is, to a certain extent, distinct in that, 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 that way. Um, one can go back, perhaps, to look at the Velasco period um, as a point of, of, of which challenged, um, in some ways, the, the dominance of, 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 um, of business elites, um, but which um, proved to be fairly short-lived, and many of the, the reforms it introduced also proved fairly short-lived. So, I mean, that represents a kind of parenthesis, I think, in terms of a long-term uh, uh, um, development. So, I mean, it's, Peruvians are unable to look back with much clarity to a point at which things were very different. Now, the book refers to the notion of, of political capture rather than state capture. I mean, we talked a lot about the, the idea of state capture, about how elites have business elites manage to influence state decisions in ways that basically tend to be supportive of their own interests. But we look at it in a wider term, and the, the term political capture involves the way in which um, a, a sort of common sense, a new common sense of sentido commun has emerged, um, in which uh, a large sectors of the population are very much sympathetic to the idea that uh, this is the only game in town. There, to use the, the famous Thatcher slogan, there is no alternative. Um, many Peruvians cannot see an alternative to, 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 the, to this way. And the, the slogan of investment, investment, investment is very pervasive in terms of underscoring a degree of political support for um, these, these things. And the role of the media, in this sense, has been very important, not least that of the, um, the El Comercio, which controls such a large slice of the Peruvian media. As I mentioned before, the, uh, um, the question of, of the lack of social organization in opposition to this uh, um, is a, uh, uh, the other side of the coin. Um, um, the, uh, the contrast with Bolivia, which is um, the Bolivian ambassador joins us, is very striking here. Um, Inasmuch as um, social movements are fragmented, um, regionalist, um, <coughs> lack sustainability, um, though there are certainly elements of sustainability, but lack that ability to go beyond uh, um, that kind of regional atomization and to create a movement that sort of joins up the dots of different things in the way in which the, the Bolivian mass was very successful in doing in the years between 2000 and 2006 when it became um, when it uh, won the elections then. But another point I think we make is the question which I've alluded to also already is the question of, of this thin line between criminality and corruption um, um, on the one hand and the um, legiti legitimate forms of, of influence over the state. As I say, we've seen examples, very good examples, of the way in which the narrow margin between when one becomes the other. Um, some of the um, critiques of um, private-public partnerships which have come to light in recent years show very clearly you know, what point these things become illegal. It's not very clear on many occasions 
um, when legality becomes illegality. It's not necessary for um, those who wish to control uh, um, the, the business of the state to control the whole state. It is, we're not talking about dictatorships here. Um, what it is is necessary to there are certain key institutions which are absolutely fundamental in terms of managing things. The first, of course, being the Ministry of Economy and Finance, which is, in a sense, a sort of super ministry in Peru, um, probably outweighing, in terms of it, the power it, 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 uh, uh, it exercises, far outweighing the, the power of the Prime Minister, largely because of its uh, influence over, over budget allocations. Um, but it is very much, uh, the Ministry of Economy and Finance is uh, um, way above his, uh, his equals in round the cabinet table in terms of the influence he, uh, he um, um, wields. Um, but other institutions that are critical here is the central bank, there's the Ministry of Mi Energy and Mines, there are the regulatory agencies. All these are very important uh, in terms of the actual providing mechanisms by which this, um, this capture is, 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 um, is conducted. It's also fair to say that the nature of capture can change. I don't think we're talking about here that something is immutable. Um, you can have, um, again, if one looks at the case of, um, of Bolivia as a contrast, uh, um, the, um, very few people predicted the way in which the, the neoliberal paradigm, which uh, um, was uh, very much in the ascendant during the 19, late 1980s and early 90s, very few people predicted that this was going to call, fall, collapse in the way it did. But it did, and, uh, uh, but now, of course, on the other hand, what you see in Bolivia is the emergence of new elites. So, I mean, the nature of elites are something that's continually changing. So we're dealing with a fluctuating thing here, which is far from, far from immutable. Um, and finally, I think it's fair to say that the degrees and types of capture can vary within countries, not just between them. Um, but Peru has a, a complicated system of, of local governance with uh, uh, regional governance, uh, regional tiers, uh, uh, provincial tiers, and <coughs> there are four tiers of government in Peru. Which um, and, and, and the types of the degree and types of capture vary a good deal, I think, between one type and another. Um, but it's certainly the case that um, the kind of illegal uh, and corrupt forms of influence, which I've alluded to, are very much. Um, clearer at the local level in Peru than probably at the national level. Um, but it's important to, to not to lose focus. To focus too much on national political institutions is very important to try and disaggregate them and look at what's going on at the local level. And again, the, 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 um, the record here is, is, is pretty grim. I mean, of the um, 25 uh, um, regions in which the country is divided, more than half of the governors of those are um, either under, uh, either in jail or um, under uh, uh, um, a judicial investigation. It's a, it's, it's a very, the, what, uh, the, the case of Cusco being, being the latest, it was just uh, the arrest of the former governor that took place yesterday. <coughs> so we think that um, political capture is a useful lens through which to analyze uh, recent, the, the recent Peruvian political economy, highlighting some of the deficiencies in democratic governance. But we also think that the idea of capture provides a useful lens for comparative political analysis. So I think that um, 
I, there may be others here um, who have experience in other countries and other, other than Peru, but I think this is one of the things that probably we need to take on from here in terms of the research agenda here, is to look at how Peru stacks up against other, other instances um, in other parts of the world. So thank you very much. I'd like to start uh, thanking UCL and, and Paolo here for letting us uh, present the findings of this book in person. <coughs> I will refer mostly to the Peruvian case, the, the peculiarities of the Peruvian case, which, uh, as John said, it is different than not all but most of the South American neighbors. It didn't shift to the left, uh, didn't become part of the pink type, uh, even if there were at least two opportunities in the last <coughs> decades to do so. Uh, as you know, 1990 is a turning point in, in Peruvian history in, in, in more than one sense. It's a radical economic uh, policy turning point because Peru adopted you know, the, the principles of neoliberalism. Uh, it is a, a political turning point because Fujimori, as soon as he is elected, begins to develop a plan to close the Congress, control the courts, and, and the government becomes <coughs> increasingly authoritarian and corrupt as, as time passes during the decade. He changed the constitution and introduced re-election. It's also uh, a period where it's the beginning of the end of the war that has been initiated uh, 20 years before uh, with Sendero Luminoso, a war against uh, terrorism. Uh, and it's also the beginning of a period that Fujimori described as a period of peace and prosperity and stability. By 2000, 2001, when, when the Fujimori regime collapses, when, we, when the videos are, are, it's interesting that now we have a pattern of, of political scandals that go through media or, or, or the internet that can actually shake a regime. Even if Fujimori won the re-election in 2000, uh, the, 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 the video scandals actually accelerated his downfall. So that was an opportunity, basically, to do the same as Chavez has done in, in, in Venezuela in 1998. Lula was already uh, in the making. You know, the PT was becoming the most influential party in, 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 in Brazil, and I suppose uh, the Evo phenomenon was beginning to unfold in Bolivia or also in Ecuador. It didn't happen in Peru. But if you look at the, that critical juncture, the leaders that uh, took the lead and were able to gather stronger political support, what they proposed basically was the idea that we needed to go back to democracy. But at the same time, it was also necessary to keep the same economic model unchanged. And the one who best expressed this, this goal in the, in, in the sense of where to go was President Toledo, who during the campaign said, we have, uh, Fujimori has uh, developed the first floor, the economy, now we have to put the second floor on top of it, democracy. It is true that uh, there were social movements and political movements demanding, of course, the cancellation of the Fujimori regime, fair and free election. Justice, because of the process of the record of human rights violations and ends of corruption, etc. But actually, the forces that could have claimed an alternative 
in the sense of, of trying to combine democracy of a, of a new type with a different type of economic policies were quite weak. And partially it is the result of what happened during the 1990s. The alternative forces really didn't have a chance to keep uh, their political standing to defend their social organizations, to develop politically an alternative, mostly because they were caught in a crossfire for about 10 years or more, because uh, many parties of the left, or if you want to call the progressive sectors of society, were attacked at the same time by the Shining Path and the Fujimori government. So that this decade of peace means basically peace because of repression. Even if when the Fujimori regime collapses, suddenly there is a, a wave of social movements and demonstrations and people demanding justice, it wasn't enough really to uh, generate a political alternative. And the center, the center right of the political spectrum, uh, led by Toledo and others, basically took the lead. But we also remember, and this is, I think, a very important point, the effects of the way neoliberal policies were introduced in Peru after the Fuki shock and after the coup, because the coup gave the government the power to rule by decree. So we have a, what they call a tsunami of, of changes in, 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 in every aspect, including labor. So the introduction of the, introduction of the labor laws uh, basically deepens the weakening of the labor union movement, who for centuries, well, not for centuries, but for more than a century, has been the center point around which peasants, students, and, and, and intellectuals have revolved. So the labor laws actually weakened the unions, and this meant that one element of social mobilization was not there. Neither those who tried to you know, reorganize politically could actually find the, the, the right climate to, to grow. So what Peru does basically in 2000-2001 is to shift from a pattern of authoritarian development to a market democracy, very much the kind of proposed by, by, by the, the neoliberals, by Jorge Dominguez from Harvard University and others, that the market democracies were possible. In 2011, about 10 years later, there was a second chance. There was a, another opportunity open. And in this case, uh, uh, having the ability to uh, galvanize those different elements that enjoy political freedoms could actually demonstrate and organize. And in some cases, clash with the government who continue to follow the same policy. And actually, because of the bonanza, the export bonanza that begins around 2002, then there's a, a, a great wave of investment, not only focused on, on destructives, and Peru has a, a highly diversified uh, extractive uh, economy, not only minerals, but gas also, agricultural products. So there's a, a wave of investment that puts pressure on, on Andean communities and the indigenous groups, who in some cases want to renegotiate the terms of, of redistribution, or who wants to stop large investment projects because they felt that it was against, uh, against their interest. Uh, this was, an, uh, 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 it was a kind of an important uh, point, especially the, the, the Baguas, you know, the, the Bagua conflict, 
where for the first time in history you have indigenous groups uh, uh, becoming political actors, and being able to build around them a coalition of forces and a movement that it was about to become national in the scope until the tragedy happened. And there were both police and uh, officers as well as demonstrators dead in, in that, that incident, but for a moment it just galvanized the nation. I think because of these reasons, people begin to uh, consider alternatives, looking for new faces, forgetting what the old guard, but trying to establish a connection with them since they had an ability to mobilize some groups. And, and the one who basically channeled these this, uh, alternatives was a former uh, army officer, Ollanta Humala, who seemed to be like a Velasquista, no, but who had a military revolution in 68, and certainly uh, 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 talking about nationalism and, and, and the need to initiate social reforms. Ollanta Humala more or less represented that tradition. But it was a new generation. <clears throat> And actually, this time, the alternative forces were able to craft an alternative known as the Great Transformation, a very well-developed, seriously developed. It was perhaps the only political force that had an alternative plan so well-developed, because the Red basically had the policy of continuing what was established in, 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 in 1990 by the Washington Consensus. When the election was won, to the surprise of, of many political forces, actually, the only gain was to establish some universal social policies, which, of course, are a significant contribution. Pensions uh, for those who are 65, 65 years and older, and other, other social, universal social policies, not focalization policies, as the World Bank has always recommended, right? You have to center in those who are poor, and that's where you concentrate aid. These were universal social policies. There was a incorporation of, of, of members of the coalition, of course, in, in the government, but not in real positions of power. In the end, the super ministry that John talked about, the Minister of Economy and Finance, was again captured unquote, by members of this same elite of people that are highly trained, very competent, of course, you know, they have all the necessary credentials to hire them, perhaps here. Uh, people who have study at the best university, have a you know, significant working experience, but who have it at the same time the characteristic of, of being part of these new elites that basically run Peru. Uh, the, the technocrats, all business people who have been technocrats in the past, or technocrats who have ended up becoming business people. So you see the, the, the pattern repeating itself since 1990 to against 2011. And I think this was a moment when, when the alternative forces lost the possibility of really uh, making sure that at least there will be a partial uh, compliance of the agreements discussed in, in, in the campaign, because the, the main cabinet position was at that moment lost. And uh, therefore, it took about three months, basically, to, to uh, see uh, Umala changing the cabinet and removing the, those elements that were part of the initial electoral coalition. So basically, uh, there was this continuation. And, and actually, one of the slogans that became typical of, of that period were that the economy was an automatic pilot. 
pilota automatico, which is quite interesting that, that no Congress, no president, even if we were changing presidents in every election, could actually touch the, the economy. Actually, it was even worse, I would say, if, if you consider that neoliberal policies are not exactly the, the, a good policy prescription for growth, which is my case. In every administration, what you see is the deepening of economic policies and the intent to try to seal this orientation signing trade agreements or providing uh, uh, protections to corporations who invest in, 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 especially, but not only in destructive industries, that basically put the corporations at the same level as the state, so you're losing sovereignty. <clears throat> and to accept the arbitration you know, from international uh, organizations, etc. And the deepening continue. As this happens at a time where the Expo Bonanza is, is still uh, uh, operating, begins in 2002, ends in about 2012, but it kind of, we don't have a crisis, it kind of slows down. As, as it is the case uh, today. Now, perhaps this year will go zero because, but that's because of nature, El Nino. So the, 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 I think the export bonanza generated expectations for material improvement. And it was very strong, especially among the new generations of Peruvians and the millennials. They ended up being engaged in, in intense mass consumption, consumption of electronics, clothing, whatever. So it was quite difficult, really, to appeal to this new generation under conditions of an amazing bonanza. I mean, never before in the history of Europe, with the exception of the one period between 1840 to 1875 or so, Peru had experienced such a long bonanza period in which almost all commodities had demand and better prices. And of course, these investments were located in various parts of the country. So, and at the same time, infrastructure was built. No question about it. There were some better oriented economic social policies in the different ministries, you know, the, the, the reforms of education, the reforms of health care, and a sense of prosperity. Yet, at the same time, you have the persistence of, and perhaps more intense social conflict. As soon as Omala begins to shift to the right, we have the eruption of major conflicts in, in Cajamarca, the Conga case, then in Tintaya. You know, the government tried various approaches to it, you know, first using the force, but then it didn't work, then entering negotiations, trying to re-establish, try to, to, to uh, unblock, as they say, you know, this blockade, to unblock the projects. And we're talking about several, uh, uh, this is a large investment policy. You know, Conga may be about four billion or four and a half billion. Nokia Maria could be about two billion. So, and, and there are many more who are, are in, this, in this process. And I think basically that Peru uh, had under Mala a Stalinate. I mean, the government wasn't strong enough to impose its will and, and then uh, uh, defeat the social movements that were appearing in the, in the countryside in these large investment projects. Because they realized politically that if they continue to listen to what the business class was proposing, that they were breaking the law, that you have to you know, uh, 
use legitimately force against demonstrators. These movements were regional in the scope, could become national. So they begin delayed, introducing dialoguing mechanisms, in some cases working well, in others not. But it was more of a political strategy than the real intent to change the orientation that was established in 1990. First, investments. Second, investments. And then if people demand, yeah, we may consider some dialogue, we may implement some laws, you know, private consultation, without real will from the state to move in this direction. And perhaps that's, that's one of the tragedies of How can you push the economy in the direction of instructors if at the same time you don't have the legal, the political conditions to clear the disputes that will eventually arise? And of course, as time passes, from the 1990s on, you have the same economic policy, you have the continuation from 2001 on, one administration after the other. That's also the case of Kuczynski, who was elected uh, in the last election, a member of the Washington Consensus, you know, a banker, a technocrat, you know, uh, very much someone who represents very clearly these this, this, this elites and the revolving door that happens between different positions of power. Uh, so what you see is that the continuation of this type of approach, not neoliberal policy in general, because the implementation changes from country to country, and, and you have variations that are significant, but this more extreme form of, of, of neoliberalism that Peru has adopted, and this blind faith in the market, don't regulate, don't, don't, don't plan, right? There is no real planning in Peru, actually. In a natural disaster, you see the consequences of this lack of, of central planning. Is that the elites have empowered themselves economically? So I, I did a study of about you know how much assets, what's the value of the assets of the major economic groups in the 1980s, let's say 1985, 86, when there were some studies. You're talking about the hundreds. $200 million, $300, perhaps the biggest, $400, no more than that. When you look at, at uh, the same indicator in the last five years, we're talking about 4000 or $4 billion. It has multiplied by 10. Not only that, they have really, uh, uh, in this situation where you have a, a, a capitalism that can grow at will, basically, can merge Required, right? They have developed monopolistic positions or oligopolistic positions in key sectors of the economy who are highly profitable. So the amount of money that we have or the, what the corporations make improve is much larger, perhaps comparatively speaking, in other cases where you have redistribution policies, you have balancing elements there. So it is true, uh, as John mentioned, that you know, yeah, women are, are better off right now, materially speaking, right? And that we have a democracy, you know, people vote, and, and to the best of my knowledge, elections are fair and free. But, and that's one of the points, that the question, uh, and, and John last reviewing the literature in the US, this debate that originates in the 1950s with uh, Mills, right? Mills uh, and uh, other scholars, Dow, Robert Dow, the question is not so much, from our perspective, who governs? The real question is who? And that's the question we try to answer in the book, providing evidence 
not only by looking at uh, the way the leaves have empowered themselves and, and, the, and the way they have created a number of organizations that work around the lyrics, very effective, you know, foundations, uh, consultancy groups, or media experts, etc. And the fact that they have learned politically how to operate in this uh, business-enabling environment, they, they also learn, right? They have to pull the strings of power, and, and that takes sometimes uh, time. You know? But you know, the Wanda case proves very clearly that even with a nationalist that looked like a Velasco, ended up being some something else. Right? It's a major political victory, of course. Right? So this is the the question that we deal with in the book. However, we do not limit the analysis to the relationship, because capture theory is basically a relational approach. Right? You have to look at the processes, follow the actors, establish the key points in the political process. Then you estimate or assess who wins and who loses. And of course, the answer is, is much more complex than that, right? But in the long run, if, if you look at the long durée, if in the political process, you can really answer this question approximately. You know, nobody's going to give you evidence or any evidence, right? I tried so many decades to interview these people. Rarely they answer a question. Then I understood that you don't have to ask them about themselves, but about the competition. And that's when you really have a, 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 an interesting view of how, how things work, right? So this is the, 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 the issue, but as, as the deepening of, of the model goes on, and, and if this is based more on extractive resources, and in the urban sector, is based on mass consumption, based on, on plastic money, not the credit, there, there are issues that will eventually uh, emerge. And actually, if you look at what has happened politically, despite that the election ended up in the hands of, of, of Pedro Pablo Kuczynski, we see new interest in development. Before 2014, most of the conflicts were located in isolated areas where you have the mining projects. So they really affect Lima, where you have a city of 10 million people, about one third of the population. So you could live with it. There's something happening in the Amazon jungle or the La Sierra, it doesn't affect your life. You know, the government will deal with that. That's la política del archipiélago. It's an archipelago. If, if one island is on fire, well, Bring down the fire, you know, that as, as long as it doesn't spread, you are okay. And even has centuries of experience of bordering by the center. However, in 2014, for the first time, we see the beginning of national movements or urban movements, urban-based movements, centering the capital city, that were able to put pressure on government and the elites and obtain some changes. For example, the pension fund system. Very strong criticism about the commission they charged and, and the inability of people to use their funds, and they they were defeated. Now you can withdraw your funds. Before it was impossible. People nowadays, even if in the long term this is kind of critical, right? They prefer the cash now. They want to buy a car, invest in a house. I don't know. It was defeated. They haven't recognized that, but I think it's it's a, a real turning point. 
And then we have the um, famous uh, law to try to promote development among, among young people that actually uh, was intended to basically uh, uh, cheapen the labor of young people because basically they have to operate with less benefits. And this led to one, another political surprise. Even if the law was approved by the Congress in mid-December, you know, when people are basically starting their vacation, right? People mobilize, and what you have is, is not so much the unions of the past or the political parties of yesterday. What you have is something happening which they call sonales. These are, are territorial uh, 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 groups that appear in, in Lima. So they have divided the city in zones with no clear leadership but ability to mobilize. And they were able to mobilize like six times in Lima for the first time. Congress had to repeal the law. It's a major defeat. Now they are trying it back again with Fuchiti, uh, so we'll see what happens in this uh, second major clash that may eventually occur. So I think that's a change. That's a change. And I think there's also a new generation of, of politicians who are thinking in, in terms of economic alternatives and, and who are developing a more critical view. And you can see that in the last election. Okay? Fuchiti won. But Right behind, you have Veronica Mendoza. It's a change. Despite that the left is still plagued by internal divisions and has to overcome many issues, organizational issues, to reach the point where you can actually present an alternative and challenge, challenge elite rules. We don't know yet. But it seems to be uh, in the making. So, to uh, respect the 30 minutes that I have, right? And emulate John here, no puedo quedar mal, I will make a, a final remarks. So what is it that uh, is interesting about the concept of political capture? Because it gives you a look of society as a whole. You know, my colleagues at the Music Academy University, they talk about government policies. I mean, that's fine. I, I enjoy that too. But they don't open the view. They don't have a panoramic view of what's going on in the country as a whole. So I think the the concept of capture forces you to look at the connection between the leads and corp and the ways they can use particular instruments to, to gain advantage in comparison to other social groups. That, that's it, that's it. So we are saying that political capture is conditioned by extreme uh, form of economic power concentration, by concentration of the decision-making power in the hands of the super-ministry of economy and finance, by the weakness of civil society, despite the efforts to recover, reorganize, try to participate in the process that happens from time to time, is still a challenge. And by the role of the media, who is a key actor in this process. And I think they wouldn't do it without the media. So, so here we have a problem. As, as they are concentrating and expanding and Using new technologies, the media is becoming more and more influential. If you don't develop forms of alternative media, it's going to be quite a challenge to introduce even minor reforms in the process that is coming. And finally, the question of, of how do you influence really the policy process? I would say that three instruments are combined in a sequence, or what I understand. When governments are about to change, the critical instrument is 
campaign finances. You get to finance parties. And these groups have so much resources, they can finance three or four political parties because they don't know who's going to win the election. And in, on, parallel, on a parallel basis, they can finance 10 or 20 different congressional uh, campaigns. And they say so. In the uh, Odebrecht case, now we know that 80% of the funds of this special section was dedicated to campaign finance. That's number one. Second, lobbying. And lobbying in the transition period usually takes place at the highest level. Special meetings, private meetings with the president, a few trusted advisors with the economic power groups, and that's where they make arrangements. Arrangements at last, which are not the same as the arrangements done during the campaign with the unions and, and, and other social groups. So that's why you see real power in the main. And that leads to the use of the revolving door. Because on that basis, then you can say, look, Mr. President, continuity is very important. We need to continue with some policies. Now we provide you this list of possible candidates to the Ministry of Economy and Finance. And once you have that position of power, you control the budget. Basically, you are a, 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 in control, if you want to put it that way. So in the future, I think we need to do more specific research on this, but at least we lay out the argument that this is what is happening in, 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 in Peru and, and certainly maybe a, a little controversial. <laughs> <laughs> but we hope that the controversy stimulates a necessary debate. Thank you.